Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We are fresh off the first interdivision game of the entire season. Unfortunately, I'm not really sure it was worth the wait. It's the Yahoo Sports Hockey Podcast. Justin Cuthbert and Julian McKenzie back with us. Julian, what is going on, man? I feel like it feels like I haven't seen you in days. It, like it's kind of weird. It. Like, yeah, it's weird. Like, like I think the frequency of all the episodes we were doing uh, in the Canadians Jet series and the Leaf series, I was like, okay, I'm kind of used to seeing Cuth like every two, three days, and like this week, it was just like, huh? I don't even think you were on. Were you on this week's episode of Zone Time? I don't think so. I was not. I've no. uh, I've been been cut out of the rotation a little bit. I'm gonna have to talk to uh, our superiors here. I suppose. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Because I mean, you're the franchise, so there's no reason you should be cut out of any conversation. Uh, that is not even half true. Um, but uh, you know, the zone time fame is that's your wheelhouse, and you guys discussed a multitude of factors today. So we're not gonna try not to hit on those, and we're gonna try to look forward, but also look back at what we just saw. In game one between the Islanders and Lightning, it was a 2-1 victory for New York, taking a 1-0 series lead with a road victory at Amelie Arena. Now, I think the the uh, the phrase, a perfect road game or a f- perfect road period, gets thrown along too often. It's just like you played a perfect road period if you didn't, you know, didn't get a deficit or, or you didn't play in front of a raucous crowd and lose ground in either the series or the game. That gets thrown around too much. But if you look at the Islanders and what they did Sunday afternoon at Amelie Arena, it seems like they achieved that perfect road game. Three periods of just straight suffocation if we're looking at what Tampa Bay was trying to accomplish and what the Islanders were trying to do out there. Um, We'll get a little deeper in how this might influence what we're thinking, but I guess just your impressions of the game and how the Islanders performed and if it surprised you if of anything that you saw in the game because you know we, we've sort of come to expect a certain thing from the islanders in these playoffs not necessarily boring i mean if you say the word boring uh on twitter and use the word islanders with it you're going to get about 50 comebacks your way please um, don't do this again not again so, not my mentions so, again please don't do this <laughs> we'll try to keep it you know above board here but they didn't exactly play the way they have been playing they played a more safe game and a more structured game and a game that worked against you know one of the better teams in the league so what did we learn from game one and does it sort of influence your thinking at all moving forward here I think uh one thing I've learned from a good deal of the postseason 
uh, one game does not make a series. It does not make an outcome for a series. So as best as we can, we should try to keep all the thoughts to one game in a series. Another thing I've learned is that if you are a team with a high-powered offense or at least front-loaded talent, suffocating them to death with traps and defenses and aggressive forechecking seems to be the way to go. It worked for the Montreal Canadiens, it's worked for the Vegas Golden Knights, and it worked for the New York Islanders here. And another thing, mistakes. Those are going to kill you pretty much in every sport, but there are two mistakes I can't help but think about uh, that essentially went against the Tampa Bay Lightning here. The Steven Stamkos offensive zone pass that leads to the great outlet pass from the Islanders leading to the Matthew Barzal uh, game-opening goal uh, which, I mean, that led to Steven Stamkos getting benched for a good chunk of that second period. And it just goes to show that, you know, the margin of error has to be very thin against a team like the Islanders, who seem as if they'll be able to make you pay if you make a mistake. Even for a team like the Tampa Bay Lightning, who have come in almost scoring at will with the weapons they have up front. And the second mistake is Andre Vasilevsky on that shot from Ryan Pollock. Uh, where it didn't go off any sticks, and Vasilevsky had a piece of it before it trickled behind him. For a team like the Tampa Bay Lightning, where they're going up against a team that doesn't really give a lot in terms of scoring, they're, they can be very sound defensively when they want to, they learn that they cannot afford to go into the rest of this series making mistakes or being lackadaisical, and they certainly can't be in a situation where some of their high-powered offensive players uh, are, are held to just like one shot. Right. So they need to figure out a way to get through this trap, keep entering the zones with speed and, and keep trying to get that way. It's not as if they didn't get any shots on Semyon Varlamov uh, and they did get the goal near the end. But the Lightning just have to be a little bit more clean with the way that they play. Their top guys need to step up. They just need to continue getting some shots on here. But everything we saw in game one, we have to remember it's something we saw in just game one. And I don't think it's necessarily something we can just say could have it could be the dominant theme for the rest of this series. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. I mean, I think far too often we react to what happened in a game one and immediately assume that this is how it's going to play out for the rest of the series. I think the perfect example of that is Colorado and Vegas. And Colorado had that thrashing 7-1. to I mean, it was Vegas coming straight off of a emotional game seven win over the Minnesota Wild. So there were other things that were sort of in play there, but not before long, Vegas completely changed the outlook of that series and the theme from shift to shift for about you know, 10, 12 straight periods, it was completely different than game one. So this could uh, clearly be different as we move forward in this series. I, I sort of agree with you. I think there was a, a, an element of Tampa Bay just being far too casual. I mean, it looked like they thought they were just going to waltz in and, and destroy the Islanders, which is strange because they know exactly what the Islanders can do, having played them in the Eastern Conference final last year. And the fact that they are as experienced and, and as knowledgeable in these scenarios as any team being one of the more dominant forces in the postseason for the last five or so years. So it was a little bit surprising to see them not exactly have any sense of urgency or, uh, you know, it, at least their fastball in this game. It was a little bit surprising. I think the Islanders have a lot to do with that, but the Islanders can pick you apart or settle into that structure and stymie you if you're not you know, your most ambitious self. And I don't think we saw that from Tampa in this game. Um, I guess one theme that, that sort of is popping up or something we could at least discuss is the fact that Tampa doesn't have, Tampa doesn't have a, a sparkling record from a five on five perspective in this, 
in these playoffs so far. I think more than 50% of their goals have come on the power play. And if there's any reason that New York won this game more than anything else, it's that they didn't get into penalty trouble. I think their first minor came at the end of the second period. And when it's broken up between periods, it's, it kind of ruins the flow for a, a team that gets the power play. And I think they got one late, but they were already behind at that point. And uh, actually, they did score a power play goal uh, with the man with the empty net. So they were six on four at the time. That's not a normal power play. That's just sort of separate from everything else. Um, but still, the five on fish, five on five issues persist. Um, I think there's a couple caveats here, though. And one is that I think the most important one is the fact that they have been leading more than any other team in the postseason. And when you're leading in games and you've scored on the power play in games already, you don't necessarily have to go out and try and get those third and fourth and fifth goals in the game because you already have a lead and you're doing what the Islanders do, which is protect leads. So I think that's one reason why we've seen this. They've got a lot of power plays. They've capitalized on those power plays and then they've held leads. So that's sort of been the Tampa MO so far. But still, in this game at five on five, they produced nothing. Like Semyon Varlamov was like, never once stressed in the crease he was very he wasn't forced to work at all and at least you have to get your goaltender or the opposing goaltender to work and to try and get those shots and to make those bounces for yourself and Tampa just not industrious enough I didn't think at all at five on five and that's symptomatic of their entire playoffs but maybe lesser less of an issue that people are people are trying to make it out to be that's a really good point you just made about the fact that because the Lightning have been chased, have been leading so much, they don't necessarily have to chase the game and force themselves to get those goals at five on five. Uh, I wonder if going forward, because of the fact that they have not been able to get as much success at that point, if instead of the, I mean, of course, if you have a, if you have a team with Nikita Kucherov and Braden Point, Steven Stamkos, you are going to rely on them for offensive help, but what about more on, on guys like Patrick Maroon or Barkley Goodrow who, or an Alex Killorn, guys who are you know a little further down the lineup, but they might be able to get you those goals from just in front of the net, or at least those less than stellar goals, which I think you need against a team uh, like the New York Islanders if, you're, if you realize your shot selections aren't necessarily as pristine as they should be. So I would, I would imagine that the Lightning going forward, they might need to rely on, on, on something like that. As for their man advantage, uh, the one other power play I can think of aside from the one near the end of the game, it's the one that was broken up between the second and third period. If I recall correctly, I don't think they got a shot off on that power play. I think no. the Islanders, for whatever reason, just found a way to just kind of keep them from setting into the offensive zone. I don't even think they really had all that much zone time in the offensive zone for that power play. And I did not purposely mean to say zone time there. But every time you do, every time you do though, it's, it's fantastic. I love it. I have to say, though, every time I hear it from, like, Gary Galley or someone in the playoffs, it's really fun. Anyway, um, <laughs> that was really interesting to see that the Lightning, a team that supposedly thrives off the power play, they were not even able to get that going for the third period. They really could have used that. Um, I'm not ready to say that they have, like, a five-on-five five problem yet. I don't know. I just think that with the weapons that they have up front, talk to me about it after game three or game four. You know, I, I think with a team like that, uh, that has the, the goal-scoring opportunities, the goal scores that they have, and guys like Nikita Kucherov and Braden Point and Steven Stamkos, as I mentioned, like, they'll, they'll, you'll normally find a way to score. And if the Tampa Bay Lightning find a way to break the game open and it has to be a shootout, there aren't too many teams in the NHL who can go toe-to-toe in a, in a wide-open game where they could use their speed, skill, and scoring smarts to get goals in. So I'm not ready to say it's a five-on-five five problem yet. I think the, the Islanders played them really brilliantly in game one. Let's see how it goes in game two, I guess. But if, if by game three, 
it's still very much a problem, then yikes, then the Tampa Bay Lightning definitely are in some dire straits with that. Maybe the perfect wake-up call if you're John Cooper and you're game planning for game two, because clearly the five-on-five output wasn't good enough. It hasn't been good enough if you look at the numbers, and he'll use those as as he wishes. Statistics are nothing if not self-serving. You use them to prove your point, and I think John Cooper will be trying to do that. But I think the the most damning statistic is the fact there's something that you mentioned of the guys the the big guns the Stamkos to Kucherov point. I think they only combined for maybe one shot in the game. It might have been before the end where they were where they yeah. were really pressing for the uh, to just to get on the board. Um, but they basically did nothing for 55 to you know 58 plus minutes. Uh, it was it, it, so that's going to be something that they can point to. And if we see any changes from game one to game two, I think it'll be a sense of urgency from those top guys to do a little bit more at five on five because. The penalties, as we know, are not going to, or the power plays, as we know, are not going to come uh, as quickly as they'd like or they normally would because, uh, you know, we mentioned Tampa leading for a lot of the playoffs. The Islanders, what they do or what they lead in any, in whether it's the regular season or the playoffs, is fewest time spent killing penalties. That's just what the Islanders do. They do not take penalties. They don't give you opportunities. And Tampa was reminded of that and now has to adjust. I think if we see anything in game two that's different, it's just a little bit more urgency from those top guys. Yeah. And I also just still think that some of their bottom guys as well, like the guys I mentioned with Maroon and Kalor and uh, Andre Pallad as well too, just some of their lesser guys also just finding other alternative ways to, to get pucks in front of the net and make it a living hell for Semyon Varlamov. I mean, need to find a way to make it a little bit more difficult for him in there as well. Okay, that was a brief recap of a very forgettable game one. And not certainly not like last year where I believe it was an 8-2 thumping for Tampa who was like, you know, they were fighting the good fight, exciting hockey while the Islanders were fighting the not so good fight and sort of bogging down the playoff bubble. Yeah. And again, it's times have changed. They're a lot better and a lot more entertaining this year, so you got to give them that credit. But Tampa sort of seemed like it restored order with that win. It went six games regardless, um, you know, but I guess the uh, shoes on the, on the other foot this year with the Islanders getting game one. But the main meat of our conversation today is previewing Vegas in Montreal in the other interdivision matchup we will see this season, or at least until the Stanley Cup final. And I'm just curious as we sort of wade our way into this dis- this discussion, what is the discussion like in Montreal? Like what is dominating the discourse? What is everybody in Montreal talking about? In the lead up to the series, is it, you know, Flower versus Price? Is it the Max Pacioretty situation with the trade with Suzuki and him coming back, eventually the former captain of the Habs? Or is it just everyone trying to figure out a way to get down to Vegas to watch games in Vegas? Uh, you forgot another one. Uh, the Montreal Forum ghosts reappearing and, and helping out the Montreal Canadiens as they go through a playoff run. Uh, Mark Bergevin's red suit. I believe Eric Engels tweeted out the other day during a media availability with Mark Bergevin because he had a hard out, I think at 30 minutes, no one was able to ask about uh, the suit that he was wearing. And he actually apologized in the tweet that he put up. Uh, Another thing I've noticed a lot is that a lot of Canadians fans have just thrived off the fact that pretty much everyone overlooked them. And I know you mentioned uh, the last zone time you were on that even the Montreal Canadiens overlooked themselves. And you kind of related that to some of the coaching decisions that they made. But Mm -hmm. a lot of people, uh, a lot of Canadians fans are really just like 
digging into the fact and are really just believing into the fact that they're a team that just been overlooked by everyone. They're the ultimate underdogs and they've bought into that. And it's kind of endearing in a way just to see that a team that, you know, even I, I mean, I was high on them that I wasn't high on them. And now I'm kind of just sitting back being like, all right, whatever is going to happen with this team is just going to happen. It's just been fan. It's just been fun to see fans just kind of look back and be like, Hey, yeah, you know what? Like, this is the team that's gotten to this point and Carey Price playing the hockey that he's been playing. Obviously people are going to look at the storyline, as you mentioned with him and Flurry. Uh, those two great goaltenders going to play with each other. Uh, the Max Pacioretty one is also interesting, not in the fact that it's out there, but in the fact that so many people have gone out of their way to squash it. Like I, I think Max Pacioretty was asked about it. And he didn't necessarily want to give that any, any mind really, yeah. Nick Suzuki, I think, was also asked about it, and he said it was less about making the trade, you know, wrong for Vegas, but proving Mark Bergevin right for acquiring him, which I think is a cool way of of phrasing it. But, like, I I think a lot of people are trying to get out of that. I think even Alan Walsh as well, who's the agent of Pacioretty, even said, like, oh, well, people are drumming up this storyline, even though both parties have moved on. So it's really interesting that, uh, you know, I think in almost any other series, a lot of people would focus on the fact that a former captain is going back to play uh, against the team that drafted, well, the t- yeah, the team that drafted him and, uh, you know, spent a lot of his great years of his career in. Uh, but his people have found a way to kind of quash that. By the way, fun fact, Max Pacioretty, the second cap, the second former Montreal Canadiens captain in history uh, to play a playoff series against uh, the Montreal Canadiens, the second former Canadiens captain in history to play a playoff series against the Montreal Canadiens. If you find a way to figure out who the first one is, I will never make a joke about your dad on this show ever again. So if you figure that out, full marks to you. But those are some of the different storylines that have been drummed up, but I'm really intrigued at how the fans have just kind of bought into this team that, you know, it's just straight up an underdog. And they're looking at all the predictions again. They're seeing everyone picking Vegas. And they're just like, oh, well, here we go again. You know, Montreal, we just have to – Prove everyone wrong again. And I have to admit, like, I don't feel all that comfortable picking Vegas. Like, I feel they might win, but I don't feel comfortable being wrong again. What other, like, and and also Dominic Ducharme. A lot of people are saying, hey, where's the support for Dominic Ducharme? Where's the credit for Dominic Ducharme? Someone specifically wrote a comment on a video I did just mentioning, like, hey, man, you seem to be very reluctant at giving Dominic Ducharme credit. Dominic Ducharme deserves some credit. He definitely, he, he deserves some vitriol and some criticism for not playing Yasmeri Kakademi and Cole Caulfield in the first few games of the playoffs, but he's managed to get all of his players to buy in to everything that he's been doing so far. And again, I don't remember if I mentioned it here, if I mentioned it on the Montreal Gazette, I think I'll mention it here. But one thing that's really endeared me to Dominic Ducharme is how at the end of the Winnipeg Jets series, he took the time to make it clear that he's he's really just enjoying the moment that he's in. The fact that he's a Montreal Canadiens coach and he was able to have that moment where he could just sit down and realize, holy crap, like I'm the coach of the Montreal Canadiens. If you are a Quebec-born hockey person, if you're a Quebec-born person with the intentions of being a coach, it doesn't get any higher than being the coach of the Montreal Canadiens. Dominic Ducharme mm-hmm. can say he's coaching junior, he's won a gold medal at the World Juniors, but to be the head coach of the Montreal Canadiens, like that is like the ultimate peak, I feel, for anyone in Quebec who wants to coach. And Dominic Ducharme can say that he has that. And he has the opportunity now to take this team someplace they haven't been uh, since 1993. And he knows that. And the fact that he was willing to 
make that known and also say, hey, you know what? This is a chance for us to write our own story. Saying quotes like that really endeared me as just like a, as, a, as obviously a hockey media person kind of endeared me to, to what he's been all about for this postseason. He's definitely earned himself the right to stay uh, at least for next season. Who knows even beyond Mark Bergevin as well, I think with the moves that he did as well. And I know we might touch off on that a little more, but his, his future, I think, is a little bit more secure as well. But uh, yeah, there's a, no shortage of storylines that, that people have been talking about. We've been discussing on radio and whatnot. My wrong guess is Guy Carboneau. Wrong? It is not Guy Carboneau. You have to go farther back. I probably thought it was farther back. But I thought I just Dallas popped in my head. I mean, Dallas didn't play Montreal. But anyway, we'll move past that because I'm not going to get it. Uh, which means you can, it's open season for you, which it has been since you joined I pick us my on spots. the podcast. I pick my spots. You pick your spots. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of uh, encouraged to hear uh, what you're saying with Dominique Ducharme enjoying this moment, the fans enjoying this moment and not showing the dread that you would probably see in a market like Toronto because a team like the Vegas Golden Knights is waiting for you. Uh, and I think that a team that's enjoying its position, a team that maybe didn't expect but now believes and 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 maybe thinks back to why didn't we believe before like why didn't we expect this to happen I feel like that's sort of what's seeping in from the players perspective so all that that sort of chemistry that turns it that turns a team into a dangerous one because there's a lot of belief there's a lot of confidence and there's also in the back of their mind that it's not a disaster if it doesn't go right and, and all these things are, are true, I think, for Montreal. Now, they're going to be going into the lion's den here, or the fortress, if you want to call it exactly what it's called. Um, Vegas is a great team. Vegas is going to be better than any team they've played all year by a long shot. I mean, I think we've learned a lot about the North Division, and we've learned a lot about Vegas in the last six weeks or so, or I guess four weeks. Um, but that doesn't mean that Montreal... I think that you're right, that you don't want to you don't want to diminish their, their chances or you don't want to write them off totally, although all 38 of your colleagues at The Athletic seem to write off Montreal. I was surprised that there wasn't one that went another route. I don't know if you were involved in that vote, if you're officially on record saying Montreal like was going to lose. But, like I uh, said, I don't feel comfortable letting people know that the Montreal Canadiens are going to lose the series. That's all I'm going to okay. say about that. Okay, so we'll leave it at that. But uh, I think everyone who voted in favor of Vegas has reason to. I think that Vegas is a truly elite team, a team that played at the very height of the game since the very start of the season, while Montreal has caught some fire here. However, I'm, I'm with you. I don't think this is going to be a complete whitewash i think there's going to be a series here and i think vegas is going to have to fight for its place in the stanley cup final but again my my initial thought is i feel like vegas is the 3.0 version of what montreal is I, I continue to go back to that point where i think vegas is who montreal can can potentially be and has worked towards since these playoffs began and again you believed in them you thought they were the best team you've ever seen from montreal in your lifetime I believed them in enough to put a small wager on them to win at the Stanley Cup at the start of the year because I thought, well, they're probably going to get through the fourth or third round because Toronto's not going to the third round and Connor McDavid's not going to the third round and the Winnipeg Jets aren't any good. So I felt at least strong enough in that regard. So we both haven't been – we've been up and down on them, right? And you, just oh, yeah. as you mentioned, we've been up and down on them. But we've always <laughs> been up on Vegas. That's our cup pick, both of us. So I'm going to stay by that. 
but my initial thoughts on this series, and I'll have you share or elaborate on yours, is that Vegas is what Montreal suddenly has become times two. And I feel like for that reason, because they're so similar, that it's going to be difficult for Montreal to create the same same advantages as it has in the two series they've had so far. And maybe just the, the team with a little bit of a better record, better performance through the start of the season, more fans in the stands, a more difficult place to play. I think all that will eventually win out in the end. Yeah, I I am full agreement with you. I've said that as well. I think Montreal looks at Vegas. Maybe this is a pretty bad analogy. I thought about it earlier today, but let's go with it. There's that episode of The Simpsons where Homer Simpson stares at himself in the mirror and he sees himself and he's way more muscular. That's pretty much the Montreal Canadiens looking at the Vegas Golden Knights. I like that a lot, actually. And it's not to say that, like, you know, the Homer Simpson looking at himself in the mirror, in this case, the Montreal Canadiens, is no, like, schmuck. Like, they can say they beat the Leafs and the Jets the way that they did. The Montreal Canadiens is Homer Simpson in this scenario is pretty good. But the Vegas Golden Knights won a game seven against the Minnesota Wild, a really good team in that division that they did, that they were in. And the Colorado Avalanche, a team that a lot of people pegged to win the Stanley Cup. And yes, the series went the way of the Golden Knights 4-2. You could make the argument that, Aside from that game one, the Golden Knights might have played like a like the better team for all for all of the series, really. It was Philip mm-hmm. Grubauer who kind of bailed out the Avalanche in game two, but the Golden Knights really threw a lot at him. So I think the Vegas Golden Knights in, in the, the talent that they have from their forwards, defense, and down a goalie on paper, I'm stressing here, on paper, looks better than what the Montreal Canadiens can offer. And it's one thing to just have that talent uh, and just be better off that front. But we've seen it. The Vegas Golden Knights, especially against a team like the Colorado Avalanche, they were able to uh, have a swarming defense, swarming forecheck, able to suppress their top talented players, and they were able to make it work for themselves. And the Vegas Golden Knights, if they're going to be doing the same thing, imagine like a lot like Philip Deneau going up against Mark Stone. Those guys are going to cancel out. And you're going to see what the other guys are going to bring out. I'm really intrigued at, at what the Vegas Golden Knights are going to bring from that standpoint. And I, I think with uh, some of the other forwards that they have, and, and even on defense as well, looking at guys like Shea Theodore and Alex Petrangelo, like I, I think the Golden Knights might have this edge here. But I'm ready to be wrong if it gets to that point. Okay, I want to elaborate on your points that you were just making right there because I think, you know, this is how we see the series. This is how we see the two teams. But strategy has to come into play here. So I want to know, I want to know from your perspective how you think Montreal will game plan for this series. We know how they've game planned for their previous two opponents. It's yes. Phil Deneau, Shea Weber, Ben Sherratt, and Carey Price. If you want to call it the de- the de- the defensive sort of triumvirate versus with you know Weber, Sherratt, and Price plus Phil yeah. Deneau up front. That's how they shut down Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner. That's how they shut down a Mark Shifley list top line for the Winnipeg Jets. But if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. You mentioned Homer and looking at yourself in the mirror. Vegas is, you know, designed a similar way in that is Phil Deneau going to go head to head with Chandler Stevenson, who is sort of his Homer? In this case, <laughs> or I guess Stevenson would be the homer in this one. We'll go back I and guess, forth with yeah. this. Yeah. But, like, that's sort of my issue here. Like, is Phil Deneau going to try to shut down the Vegas top line, which is really, in essence, a shutdown line itself? Or will Montreal, in this series, try and put Phil Deneau on the original OG mis- misfit line of Marcheseau, Carlson, and Smith? and try to shut down them. And they've been leading, carrying the load offensively for Vegas this entire postseason. So do you see Deneau matching, Deneau, Weber, and Sherratt matching up against the, the number one line or the shutdown line, the shutdown number one line, just like it is in Montreal? Or do you think they'll try and get Phil Deneau against the Riley Smith, Murchison, Carlson line and try to you know create those mismatches that way? If we, I mean, obviously I'm not Dominic Ducharme. Doesn't it make more sense to have Deneau go up against that top scoring line? Doesn't it make sense to have them try to at least say, hey, you know what? Let's just, instead of having the two shutdown lines cancel each other out and then maybe have the Marshall line end up going up against Nick Suzuki's line, which, yeah, they have the talent, but I know Nick Suzuki's face-off troubles might be uh, coming into view here, and I don't think you necessarily want to give them that advantage. So maybe, at least from my vantage point, just, you know, looking at the game plan here is trying to imagine myself as Dominic Ducharme. Why not have Dominic, why not have Philip Deneau in his line and Shea Weber and Ben Sherratt go up against uh, uh, the line with Jonathan Marshall. So, and, and that line that's been carrying their water in the playoffs offensively. I think it just makes more sense to me that way. But I also know that Mark Stone on his own, uh, yes, he could shut down people, but he could also score goals when needed as well. It's kind of a weird situation here. It might be a situation where if in game one uh, they try maybe to have Phil Deneau on the suggestion I made and that doesn't work, Dominic Ducharme, I guess, could always go back in game two and just kind of flip the script perhaps. But then again, in games one and game two, he won't have that option because Vegas will have home change. So that might be a really interesting scenario as well. If it were up to me, I just think it would make – sense to just have Deneau go up against the top scoring line and then have Mark Stone, I guess, kind of feed off another line. And then I guess at that point, even if it is a little bit of a weird thing, you've seen the Montreal Canadiens get goal scored from all of their lines in the postseason. 
So I don't necessarily think, and considering all these two teams might play each other, it could be a situation where the Montreal Canadiens might have to win one nothing or 2-1 anyway. So if you're getting goals from the Corey Perry-led line, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing to have happen. But again, I'm not, I'm not Dominic Ducharme. I just think in this case, you just try to find a way to just defend as best as you can and try to neutralize the top offensive options as best as you can. Uh, and not have them feast on some of your other lines that aren't as good as shutting down other players as a dom- as the Philip Deneau line is. Uh, yeah, I don't think you can really go wrong because I think the Phil Deneau line will not be overwhelmed by trying to shut down the Marchessault line. Uh, I think that would be within their capabilities. They've shut down better lines in these playoffs already. And if they go head-to-head versus Stevenson, Pacioretty, and Stone, then maybe that just creates a wash because of all the defensive talent that's going to be on the ice in those scenarios. Mm-hmm. But it does then put the focus on Nick Suzuki a lot. And I, I've said on this podcast before in, in discussions with you that the Montreal Canadiens go as Nick Suzuki goes. And I think it's been less so that way. It's been Phil Deneau's show, I think, for most of the playoffs. Um, but it puts a lot, whatever the matchups are, it puts a lot of pressure on Suzuki, Toffoli, and, and Caulfield because they're either going to have to try and get through Mark Stone or they're going to go head-to-head against the uh, OG Misfit line and try to have match fire with fire. And either way, it's a task for Nick Suzuki. So I think, I think either way you slice it, there's a slight advantage in the top six matchup scheme for Vegas, but Montreal's got to find quickly if there's anything that they have to accomplish in game one. Obviously, you want to try and win game one, but if they're, if at the very least what they can accomplish is the best assembly for you know the tactical matchup versus Vegas and how you're going to try to uh, match up with that top six because there's one really good scoring line and there's one really good shutdown line. So how are you going to try to find your advantage or limit the damage that could be done with that top six but that leaves the bottom six and really a lot of the reason why Montreal's got to this point is because their bottom six has been better than the opposing bottom sixes that they've faced you know we talk about depth we talk about you know Deneau and Suzuki Tavoli and Caulfield but you know Josh Anderson and Kotkaniemi and Corey Perry and Eric Stahl these are still guys that are going to have a big impact on this series and on paper the, the bottom six for Montreal is maybe better than than the Vegas bottom six, maybe from name value, but maybe not actually from their, you know, their utility and their talent, because, you know, we don't know as much about those guys in the bottom six. So do you think there's advantage at all that they can create for themselves in the bottom six to try and turn this series more in their favor? I mean, Corey Perry's feasted on poor fourth lines so far. Uh, Kotkaniemi's had moments and Josh Anderson, wherever you play him, he's going to have an impact. But on the other side, it's like a real legitimate, you know, old school fourth line led by Ryan Reeves and William Carrier. And they, they do that job, that very specific job. Uh, so do you see like the fourth line matchup maybe swinging in Montreal's favor? And if not, is, you know, does Josh Anderson and Isperi Kotkaniemi, you know, are they more, can they be more impactful than say an Alex Tuck who basically carries the entire offensive load in the bottom six for Vegas. I'll say this. Like, I think that Byron, Kakinyemi, Anderson trio could look pretty decent in this series if the opportunities come their way. It's kind of an underrated line here because all three of those players, uh, Byron especially, really quick. Josh Anderson, 
uh, kind of deceptively quick. And also he's that high guy on the four check who, you know, if the, if the opposing team has the puck in their own zone, they're trying to make a way out. He's that high guy kind of pressuring them. And I still think that while, you know, he hasn't scored necessarily as much as a lot of people would like in this postseason potentially. I don't think his goal scoring totals have been much of a story throughout the playoffs because other other players, other storylines have dominated. But Josh Anderson, at least with the forechecking, creating turnovers in the offensive zone, like he he's done some decent things that have gone relatively unnoticed. And I think in a situation where you have both teams' top two lines kind of going at it with each other. That third line uh, with Byron, Kakanyemi, and Anderson, there's an opportunity for them to kind of just use their speed, use their strength, uh, use their abilities in the faceoff circle because Jesper Kakanyemi, I think, has been the team's best player in the faceoff circle since he got inserted into the lineup. There's been so many games where he's had 50, 60% faceoff winning percentages, so they can at least get possession off of those faceoff wins. And I think that could ultimately lead to some chances on end, and I think some attention should be put on that line. Uh, for this series. I think if they could get some chances in on net and, and and get some goals in, that could go a long way for this Canadiens team. That fourth line with Perry, Armia, and Stahl, they've done so well to this point. Uh, yes, they're not quick of foot, so to speak, but if they find a way to just keep applying pressure uh, while they're in the offensive zone on Vegas, uh, which I don't think their fourth line is necessarily fast either. You mentioned Reeves. like He's not necessarily the fastest guy no. either. Um, if you put, if the Canadians put themselves in a situation where they are able to maintain possession and they keep suffocating that fourth line, they've shown that they're able to get goals off of that. And the Canadians, if they're able to win those battles, win those those battles, wow, my mouth today. If they're able to win those battles in the uh, the bottom six, uh, that isn't a bad place to have goals uh, come from there. So uh, I think the Canadians could do some well, do some pretty good things if they're able to to get some goals over there. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, the the one thing with uh, Vegas is there's they don't they don't allow you to take shifts off. Like it's yeah. just constant pressure. Even if it's the fourth line, and you don't really worry about them scoring too many goals, but they put pressure constantly on the off inside the offensive zone, whether it's on defense defensemen just trying to get the puck out or just you know extended offensive zone shifts. It's something that they do very very well, and it's going to be that's going to be one of the main differences I think that Montreal faces because you know, going back to the Leafs series, you knew that third line was never scoring. They were never going to have extended offensive zone possession. You knew you could just keep them at the perimeter and you could get through those shifts. But Montreal's got four defensemen they trust, right? Four defensemen and, and another pairing that you, you might not want to put out there too often, whether unless it's the power play with Gustafson or whatever. Um, but you can't hide with Vegas. You can't hide anyone because everyone in that lineup can put pressure on defensemen specifically and just cause chaos in the offensive zone. So uh, it's well, it, it. One thing ahead. I'll add to with the defenseman here as well. One thing that could give Vegas an advantage here, Jeff Petrie among those defensemen, the Canadians obviously can trust clearly not healthy after the injury he suffered in that Winnipeg yeah. Jets series. I don't know if he'll necessarily be available for game one. Uh, he, the team's saying that he will be available at some point in the series, but I, I think the fact that the Canadians will have Jeff Petrie, at least for the start of this series that could prove to be something that could go Vegas's way and something they could exploit as well. The Canadians clearly have defense who they trust and to not have a guy like Jeff Petrie, who I think was slowly starting to refine his game in the postseason after a pretty bad end to his regular season. Uh, I think that's something that could just go Vegas's way if they could exploit that. Well, that'd be a huge loss because I, I'm not sure for 
competent defenseman is enough to beat Vegas. And if you lose Petrie, you're not only you're not down to four, you're really down to one pairing because I'm not sure the Joel Edmondson uh, impact is as considerable without Petrie there because he's played his best hockey of his career with Jeff, Jeff Petrie as his defense partner. So again, mm-hmm. something that certainly that, that Montreal needs to be maybe a little concerned about, but I, I think Petrie did skate today with a new glove that might be more protective. So we shall see. It's the playoffs. I wouldn't put it past him. Um, okay. Let's end off this discussion with this. Just ask you and I'll leave it at your thoughts. The Montreal Canadians will advance to the Stanley cup final. If what? The Montreal Canadiens will advance to the Stanley Cup final if these things happen. Carey Price has to be the better goaltender of this series against Marc-Andre Fleury. Um, The Montreal Canadiens simply have to capitalize on every mistake the Vegas Golden Knights do. I think it goes a long way for them if they win at least one of the two games in Vegas. I don't think they could afford to go back home to Montreal down 2-0 if they split the series. That's a pretty good start for them before games three and four back in Montreal. Um, I think if they find a way to shut down Max Pacioretty and Jonathan Marchessault and, and that line and put more uh, pressure on the other scoring line and, or the other you know shutdown line for the Vegas Golden Knights to kind of put up some points, that's also going to go a long way. If Philip Deneau continues to be the best off, best skater for the Montreal Canadiens from a defensive standpoint and even gets himself some chances in front of the net, I think that's also going to play a long role as well. Um yeah, that's pretty much the list I have here. I think everything just kind of has to click for this team. Health also has to be the big equalizer in all this as well. And for a guy like Carey Price, who the last time he was in this situation in the third round of the playoffs, he did not have that clean build of health. And uh, the name Chris Kreider still rings bells in Montreal for scorn and vitriol and a lot of really mean stuff I probably can't repeat but yeah uh, the health of Carey Price and the health of a lot of players for the Montreal Canadiens imperative that they are as up as they can be for this series as well well I'm not sure all those things are possible but the most important thing and the one you mentioned first is Mm -hmm. Carey Price and um, you know Vegas has had a difficult time scoring in recent playoffs not necessarily this playoff as much I mean it was probably the reason why uh, they didn't get through the Stanley Cup final last year. I mean, Dallas beat them in the end, but Vancouver took a sizable bite out of them because they just couldn't score on Thatcher Demko. And if anyone's going to frustrate a team, if anyone's going to change the dynamic of a series all by themselves, it looks like it's Carey Price, at least in his current form. Um, it's a fascinating series, honestly, um, because we just there's so many unknowns. We haven't seen these teams play each other. We haven't seen Montreal play anyone outside the North Division. We've seen Vegas beat elite teams. We know Colorado's elite team. But how do they match up against a team like Montreal? I'm not really sure. We can only really guess or go by that 38-0 to rating on theathletic.com. A um, couple more headlines, and I'll, I'll let you fill me in on this one. Is Mark Bergevin going to sign an extension here imminently? Um, I... Look, I if it gets to that point, I mean, wow. You can't say he didn't earn it, I guess, which I think a lot of people at the beginning of the year thought, okay, he's essentially, you know, getting these moves in. Actually, I won't even say beginning of the year. And I've said this on different forums on different shows as well. But when you consider the moves he made in free agency and the trades he made in the offseason, when you consider the firing of Cole Julian 
uh, to put Dominic Ducharme, who, yes, he was a head coach in waiting, but the fact that he made that move, the fact that he let go of goaltending coach Stefan Waite in the middle of a game, later on Stefan Waite saying that he, apparently in the conversation with Bergevin, saying that if he did not get Carey Price going, he would be out of a job. It's very clear to me that Mark Bergevin knew going into this season, his seat was on fire and he needed to make moves to put his team in a position where they could make the playoffs and save his job. And when Carey Price, uh, you know, they got through that series against the Winnipeg Jets or, and, and Mark Bergevin is up on what was the games? Was it against the Leafs or the Jets where, where Mark Bergevin is going to Carey Price and he is elated and happy and giving him a back rub. Like that's not he just came down like for both. He came down for both, yeah. but I think the back rub might've been specific to the Leafs. So I'll say this, like, and, and, and also remember Mark Bergevin in his, in his little like box after the OT goal with Cole, with Cole Coffey and Tyler Toffoli, mm-hmm. hugging everyone in the box. Like to me, Mark Bergevin isn't just hugging up everybody because of the fact that his team is going so far as they've been going so far. He's hugging up everybody because he knows his job is safe. And yeah. I mean, we all know in the industry that we are in, in journalism, Ain't nothing more reassuring and relieving than job security. And I would not be surprised if Jeff Bolson looked at Mark Bergevin, looked at the job that was done uh, to this point, the fact that they built a team that essentially got them to to this point in the playoffs. They have themselves a young core that is currently being developed and, and they had all the draft picks and they were able to get all the guys they were able to get. But it's very clear going forward, this team is going to be leaning more on Nick Suzuki, Yusperi Kakanyemi, uh, Cole Caulfield is going to get his chances as well. Uh, Alexander Romanov, who they've raved of before. Uh, I know we only got into the lineup fairly recently, but he'll get more bearings in. Uh, just that's just to name a few. Obviously, they've signed other guys to contracts for the foreseeable future. It's very clear the nucleus they have in place is what they're going to be pushing forward with into the future. But on top of the other guys, they're signing to ELCs. And Mark mm-hmm. Bergevin could say that he had a hand in putting together most, if not all, of this. Um, so I, I think it wouldn't. I guess at this point, it wouldn't surprise me if nothing else. Mark Bergevin does not have to worry about whether or not he'll be back next year. Mark Bergevin absolutely. Uh, we'll be back as the GM next season. I, I'll put money on that unless like something catastrophic happens. Like I don't think he has to worry about uh, his job security for next year uh, for an extension. I'm, I'm very curious if it'll even, if it'll get, I mean, I'm curious when it'll get to that point because I don't want to be that guy that says, Oh, it's going to be an extension. And then nothing happens. So, but I, I think there's a good chance. Yeah. I mean, he'll be back and I, I don't know if he'll be extended, but he should be back. He should be back. He'll he, be back. He did. I mean, we, we what we thought could happen did happen. And just because they had a bad regular season doesn't mean that his vision didn't play out exactly as many people thought was possible. And he get he deserves to be uh, rewarded for that. Um, you mentioned Big J Journalism. You got it written on your sweater right now. So one of the rules of Big J Journalism is that you don't necessarily go after other guys in the media, guys and gals in the media. Uh, but we had one of the most ridiculous questions ever asked at a press conference um, when Colorado was eliminated in six versus Vegas. I can't repeat it because it is filled with expletives, or at least it had one sizable expletive. Uh, but everyone knows what we're talking about, and we don't even have to name names. But I-, I wonder if we should at least just touch on this subject, what you thought of that moment, what you thought about Nathan McKinnon's reaction, and maybe any rules for Big J journalists after 
the uh, the incident that I'm speaking of. Here's the thing that upset me the most about what happened here. And I know that people have mentioned the fact that uh, the journalist who did this uh, does not seem to come across as a... I don't want to. I don't want to say anything about his character, but he seemed to have done some things in the past that have caused a lot of people to question his character. Yes. Uh, that has been put into play. Uh, I don't think I'm saying anything wrong by saying that. That is definitely no. out there. You could do your googles and figure that out. Straight, That's already straight, out there. Straight facts. That's just a fact. Exactly. Um, there's that already out there. Plus the fact that even beyond the expletive. I have no clue what that man was trying to ask. I have no clue what he was even trying to say. And you could tell with the way Nathan McKinnon was looking, uh, just like, what the heck is going on? So those things are already out there. But the thing that upset me the most about the fact that that question was asked by, fine, he has all the experience that he has working for the outlets that he's worked at. There are people who are not as fortunate as you and I uh, in the fact that they are not able to get access to uh, be on Zoom calls or go to locker rooms or be essentially a hockey media member in the way that you and I are. And I consider it to be an absolute privilege, not necessarily a right, but an absolute privilege to be in a position where if I so choose, I can hop in on a Zoom call and ask a player a question. It may get to a point where someone will make it into a meme and everyone will put it out on Twitter and whatever, but that's just the life that's it. But there are a lot of people who are not in the position that you and I are in, and they write about the team, they do as much as they can to show off themselves as you know legitimate journalists, or even if they're just bloggers, just people who are just you know not problematic or essentially inconsequential. Like if you put them in a Zoom call, you let them ask a question, like they're not going to pull what this journalist uh, from Colorado Hockey Now did. And it's a damn shame. That's the one thing that I really thought about throughout this whole thing. There are people, and I know in Montreal and I know in other parts of Canada as well, I'm sure uh, there are people, whether they're people younger than, they're younger than I am, whether they're for other outlets, there are people who want that opportunity to be in a locker room or a Zoom call or have the opportunity to ask uh, players questions. And whether they're good or not, they might be good. They're, they're better than what the hell we heard earlier. Uh, but they might not get that chance because some teams just feel that, oh, they don't write for a legacy media outlet or a mainstream media outlet or they're a blogger or they have this weird label that they just don't understand. And like, whoa, I don't know if we should let this person in on a video call. The fact that those people, I'm not saying everyone should be let in, but I feel for some of those people who desire so much to, to have that opportunity to, to be on a Zoom call and, you know, they feel the teams that are in charge of them don't essentially trust them off of, you know, the platforms that they write for. But then you have other people uh, who just go in and then just swear and just ask n'importe quoi because they just feel that they could just do that. So that's what upset me the most. The fact that there are people out here who work their ass off in hockey media, who provide some pretty reputable information or, or at least just good people to follow. And if you put them in a Zoom call, they'd be just fine. You put them in a locker room, they behave themselves. But for whatever reason, teams just feel they can't trust those people, but other people can. Oh, that's, I, think you, I think you make a great point there because it's more reason for teams to be more of a recluse or more... Uh, you know, a hermit and trying to keep everything so safe because if you just allow 
even trusted people that have been around the team forever. That guy's been around the team forever. You trust him in that moment to not make a mockery of the situation. But with a question like that, it did. And listen, this is Nathan McKinnon. This is a raw moment. This is where we learn a lot about an athlete, a superstar athlete, one of the faces of the game. We learn about what he's thinking in this moment of failure. And instead, we're talking about this ridiculous question that was meant to be inspirational, I think. But the only inspiration I got from that is to never look like that much of an idiot in a Zoom call or a media setting. That's it. Bruh, I don't ever want to hear nobody complain about mumble rappers ever again because that dude was literally the journalism <laughs> equivalent of a, of a mumble rapper. He was like, rum, 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 expletive, rum, rum, rum. is that what you think? David Kidd's just like, no. Are you kidding me, bro? Like, what is that? If I, I, if I ask that question, if I ask that question, I know damn well once people know I asked that question, they flooded my mentions being like, oh, you're an idiot. Oh, you don't know how to ask well, questions. They you flooded his, to be fair. They definitely did, but he also put it on himself with some of the ish that he was saying after the fact. When Pete yeah. Blackburn was calling him out, he could have just been like, hey, you know what? My bad, man. Like, I just asked a bad question and just kind of left it at that. Maybe he still would have gotten people in his mentions kind of calling him an idiot, whatever. But I think a lot of people would have just been a bit more sympathetic. But when you're just punching down the whole time, no sympathy for you. Dick yeah. up, stupid. You'd never, you'd be able to live it down. Maybe not, you know, that night, maybe not the next day, but eventually you'd be able to live down that question. But yeah. if you fire, if you fire back, then there's no reason to allow you to live that question down. And for, for Nathan McKinnon, I mean, he's clearly disappointed. You mentioned eight years of not accomplishing anything. But the only disappointment that I got from Nathan McKinnon in this playoff was not coming back harder to that question. I mean, I think he was more confused than anything and just couldn't deal with it in the moment. And I, I, I recognize why he wouldn't be able to. But it would have been nice if Nathan McKinnon just came back real hard on that question. But yeah. there'll, be, there'll be another chance, I, I, I bet. Um, let's move on to the Consmith watch before we get out of here. We also have tire pumps. Um, and we'll keep it short because really, I think if we look at every team, the Consmith trophy winner, aside from the New York Islanders is probably the goaltender. Mark Andre Fleury has been the most valuable player for Vegas. Uh, I think Andre Vasilevsky, despite Nikita Kucherov's uh, enormous point totals has probably been the most valuable player there. And Carey Price is the obvious choice for Montreal. But with the Islanders, who are closer to the Stanley Cup than anyone at this very moment, uh, they've switched between Sorokin and Varlamov. It looks like it's Varlamov here. Uh, I mean, is there someone that sticks out from the Islanders' side? And if you feel free to disagree with me if you don't think it's one of the goaltenders in the other three locations. I think it's Kyle Palmieri. I think the fact that Kyle Palmieri did not necessarily have the uh, an ideal time with the Islanders in the regular season, as some might have expected, but has completely turned it around for himself in the postseason, scoring timely goals for the organization when they've needed him to, uh, in, at least through the first two rounds of the postseason. Like, I think that's, to me, if you're doing like a power ranking of possible, like, Conn Smythe Trophy considerable people for the Islanders, he's at the top for me, as far as I'm concerned. Six or seven goals to this point in the playoffs uh, for the New York Islanders. I think he's got. Uh, I think he's might have eight. He might have it. And the fact he's that he's tons. been able to put up all these goals in the playoffs, like this, is what Lou Lamorello and the Islanders wanted him for, and he's been able to uh, deliver on that for this organization in the playoffs. So I think for me, he's my pick 
uh, if the Islanders win the Stanley, or he doesn't have to win the Stanley Cup to win it, but if he is the guy for the Cosmic Trophy. I, I agree with you. I think you'd have to go that route just by just with the goal scoring and if he keeps if he keeps it up and they win the Stanley Cup. I think that would be the front runner. And that would be an incredible feather in Lou Lamorello's cap because he has built in the last two deadlines, not just off seasons, not you know, um it's just deadline deals. Deadline deals, who he's brought in over the last two years, he's built an entire third line, and that third line has been dominant in these playoffs with Palmieri. Zajac, who I never thought I would describe as dominant ever again, <laughs> or even, you know, in the last 15 years he's been playing, and Jean-Gabriel Pajot. Those three have been so big for the Islanders. Uh, basically a second identity line. A second identity line. More of an identity line than the identity line, and that's saying something because we know how important Martin Sezikis and Clutterbuck are to the New York Islanders. So I think you're right. Kyle Palmieri? And the goaltenders battling it out right now. Okay, tire pumps. It's where we bestow praise on others around the hockey world. Might be loosely associated. Might be just a hockey player or hockey coach. You ready to lead it off? Damn. Once again, uh, I'm going to just break the rule and not give it to a hockey person. Uh, I feel bad because this segment, okay. uh, which literally was started because of the fact that at the end of these episodes, we just kept praising each other. And while the, the initial intention uh, was to just kind of shout out someone in the hockey world, I think I've managed to fail uh, the last few times in actually singling out a hockey person. Um, it's my little sister's birthday this weekend. Uh, Lauren McKenzie, go. 20 Another years family old. family shout out. I love it. Uh, June is a big month. Apparently, uh, but uh, Lauren, 20 years old, uh, uh, just finished her first year of university at Concordia, not in journalism. Uh, the brief attempts at trying to swear to that path did not work. It's probably for the best. She should be her own person. Uh, she did it online. Uh, who knows what the second year will look like, but uh, pretty proud of everything she's done to this point. So uh, the tire pump for this week goes to you, Lauren McKenzie. Happy birthday. Shout out to Lauren McKenzie. Uh, I'm going to give my tire pump to also someone not related to the hockey world. I'm going to give it to the people who revived Christian Eriksson on the field yes. at Euro 2020, 2020, I guess, not 2021, even though we're in 2021. Um, but they deserve all the credit in the world. I mean, it, you know, with the John Tavares thing, sort of that world has been sort of in our focus a little bit, I guess, in the last little bit. Um, and, and it, it bears repeating though, every time if we didn't give tire pumps to the people that helped John Tavares in that moment, we should have. And these people who saved Christian Erickson's life legitimately, a life was on the line on the field at a sporting event with millions and millions of people watching and they're heroes, man. They're just heroes. It's incredible that this stuff happens on a daily basis. I was talking to my friend today whose sister is a paramedic and I'm like, how often does like, how often has she saved a life? It's like that happens all the time. There's people out here saving lives all the time when people are not even distressed on the brink of death. It is insane. And we, we don't give enough credit to these people. Uh, it's a little inside baseball, but I was the hockey trainer at Western University in my fourth year because it was a, it was a sports medicine. Uh, you know, you get a credit for following around the hockey team. And I only really wanted to do it. So I would be, you know, out of class and on the road with the hockey team but imagine i every time i see something like this i imagine that happening 
at a Western OUA game when I was on the bench with the Western Mustangs hockey team. I wouldn't know. I, I was schooled in it, but would I be able to do what those people did? I don't know. I don't think so. These people are amazing. And the fact that this happens not only all the time, but happened on the world stage and a soccer player, a world-class soccer player was revived and his life saved in that moment. It's truly incredible stuff. And those people deserve the tire pumps. Well said, man. Well, well, well said. I didn't watch the moment live. I was listening to it on the radio and it was just, just heartbreaking to even hear about and, and see the tweets. And to this point, I still haven't seen any footage of him actually falling to, to the ground. Uh, but my thoughts and prayers are obviously with, I mean, I, I know he's in better state now, but my thoughts and prayers just go to him and his family because that's just, it was just a really horrible moment. And it just goes to show that life is precious. And, you know, we make a big deal about so many things in life. And at the end of the day, like the things that we're able to do now through this podcast, for example, that's just fun stuff. And it's just stuff that we should just treasure every opportunity that we get because life is fleeting. And I'm just happy that the, uh, I don't know if it's appropriate to call them first responders in this moment. I guess it could be. Uh, but the people who tended to, to Christian Erickson in that moment, uh, deserve a ton of credit uh, and just nothing but praise for what they were able to do uh, with Christian in that moment. And again, I just hope nothing but the best for him going forward. Yeah, I mean, those, these moments are going to happen. And the fact that uh, more often than not, it's a good ending is is amazing. It's It truly is amazing. Uh, we'll leave it there. We've got game one, Vegas and Montreal Monday night. We're still working out exactly how we're going to cover this, but you'll be covering it at The Athletic, so everyone should be reading your pluses and minuses after every Habs game, and we'll have as much audio as we can possibly give you over the next, uh, I guess, 7 to 14 days as Montreal tries to punch its ticket into the Stanley Cup final. Should be a lot of fun. The third round already underway. Should be a lot of fun. Be sure to check out all of Justin's pieces at Yahoo Sports as well. And be sure to check out all of his solo uh, Yahoo Sports Hockey podcast appearances as well because he does an incredible job breaking down what's happened the night before or whatever's going on in the NHL when he's on his own. He's an incredible talent. So be sure to check out his stuff as well. I appreciate it, man. We'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds like a plan. Peace. Peace.